Jesus' name, amen. Amen, and good morning to you, Mark chapter 14 again today. As Jesus was being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane last time, we know that the disciples scattered to save their own skin. And I find it interesting that after that, like any good drama, there's always more than one thing going on. Oftentimes, there's a contrast between the main scene and then the subplot happening outside, so to speak. I find it interesting that the Holy Spirit, if you will, sort of keeps a camera on Peter the whole time so that we can learn from what he experienced during this ordeal. And I think what that tells us then is that as we look at this contrast between Peter's denial outside of the house while Jesus is inside affirming and being questioned about who he is, that contrast is meant to be taught sort of going back and forth as the Holy Spirit does here in Mark 14 to teach us a lesson because it is applicable to us that we are all at least tempted just like Peter was in the very same way to deny the Lord Jesus, at least in some way. There are different ways in which one can deny the Lord Jesus. It can be outright like Peter did. You know, do you know, are you one of his disciples? No, I'm not. But are there are definitely more subtle ways in which a believer can um, not so much necessarily outright deny the Lord, but deny the Lord by what they don't do or by what they don't say or when they don't respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And I think that God wants us to learn from that lesson here this morning. Peter's denial didn't surprise the Lord Jesus, just like our denials don't ever surprise the Lord Jesus, but God's foreknowledge of our weaknesses is not then some sort of automatic uh, excuse that's generated for us as a result of that foreknowledge at all. It's true that God knows that we will fail, that we will at times live in denial, that we will deny him in some way, shape, or form, but that does not mean that I should just resign myself to failure, to just a general failure in that regard, and then just kind of be okay with it. At the same time, and on the flip side of that, what I cannot do then is say, well, all right, I'm gonna pull myself up by the bootstraps, so to speak, and I'm gonna dig in for the Lord, and I'm gonna make sure that that never happens in my life, because that doesn't work either. Because here is Peter, Peter is a man, very clearly, you all know this to be true about him, he was a man of commitment to Christ. He was a man who had first-hand knowledge of who Jesus was and the power that he had. He was someone who was knowledgeable, or at least became knowledgeable, in the teachings of Jesus in the time that he spent with him. He was a man who knew about Jesus' great love, and he was a man who had great love for Jesus. He also had a very strong faith. Peter's denial is not a lapse in faith. It's not a weakness in faith. He does not struggle with faith. He also had a strong determination as well. He was in his heart resolved, as he said last time very clearly, that he was not going to stumble, that he would not, despite what Jesus told them in the garden. He said, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. And Jesus said, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. 
And Jesus again just responded graciously to that by saying, Assuredly, I say to you today, speaking to Peter specifically, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. You might say that Peter struggled with self-confidence. You might say he was a little bit cocky. The King James phrases it before the cock crows twice. Peter's cockiness would be interrupted here. His boast, or his crow, if you will, was even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not. I'm sure the other disciples loved it when he said that. Even if these all bozos here deny you, no way I'm going to do that. And again, that's a statement from self-assurance, from his own resolve. And if our strength in terms of who we are as Christians comes from what we think is in us, from our own determination, then when it matters most, I think, like Peter, we'll find ourselves flat on our back. Because our strength is not in our ability to stand, but it's in his Holy Spirit's ability to prop me up. But for Peter, he was absolutely certain, unquestionably, in his mind, even if it came to death. He said, I'm ready to die with you. I think even if it came to torture, Peter would have said, no way. I would never turn my back on the Lord Jesus. And I believe he meant it with all of his heart. I mean, it's not like, you know, he could have thought, sat there and thought, you know, this might be in the Bible someday. Might want to qualify this statement just a little bit and just kind of tone it down. I probably won't deny you, Jesus. He doesn't do that at all. He's very strong in what he says. And we're told that they all said likewise. They all said just like Peter. And yet we know from where we left off last time in verse 50 that they all forsook him and fled, including another, verse 51, where we pick up this morning, now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. So it sounds like there was another, just had a linen cloth around him. They grabbed him, and in grabbing him, the linen cloth comes off of him. He's naked, and he runs away. Sounds like he barely escaped. Keep trying. It's just not working. I tried to do it with the sword last week, but nobody got the point. So I thought I'd take another stab at it. But uh, anyway, Bible teachers think that this is probably John Mark, who's the young man here. And the reason why is quite interesting is the Last Supper, we believe, probably took place in the home of John Mark. John Mark's father's home. And it could be that after Judas left to go round up the arresting army, that they came back to the upper room that night, and John Mark was there. And so it's all he can do to wrap a linen cloth around him and to run down to the garden to try and warn Jesus and the disciples before Judas and the arresting army could get there. But I think it's interesting, and Charles Spurgeon actually made a point along this line, that it's almost as if, because remember, Peter is orating and Mark is penning. That seems to be the indication that Peter, this is Peter's memoirs, and Mark is the one writing. It's almost like that as John Mark records the failure here of Peter in this passage, he feels compelled himself by the Holy Spirit 
to tell you and I that he failed also. That he ran away as soon as they grabbed hold of him also. That he was looking out for his own skin. Lest any of us would be tempted to think that we wouldn't have failed on that night as well. And verse 53, they led Jesus away to the high priest. Now we know there are two phases of the religious trial. John's gospel tells us they went before Annas first, which was the father-in-law of the high priest. He was the former high priest, but once a high priest, always a high priest. And he was really Annas, the power broker, spiritually speaking, in the nation of Israel. But the, uh, the trial that Mark records, the religious trial that Mark records here for us, is just the one before Caiaphas. And we're told that Caiaphas and with him there were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. Sounds like the entire 70-member Sanhedrin was there, which would have comprised of, of those different groups. And this was the religious, the Jewish religious supreme court, if you will. These were not only the most religiously powerful men in Israel, but probably in the whole world, so to speak. And they're going to have this trial before Jesus. But the whole thing, just so you know up front, is a farce. I mean, I'm not an expert in what the Jewish law of the land, so to speak, was at that time, but you can read the Mishnah and other uh, historical writings to know that virtually everything they did here went against their own laws in terms of conducting trials. They were not supposed to convict anybody of a capital crime during one of the major feasts. They were not supposed to have a trial at nighttime or in the morning before everybody was awake. It was always supposed to be done during the day. All trials were supposed to be held um, on the temple grounds in the precincts, not in someone's home, as would be the case in this particular instance. And there were many more things, and we'll see actually a few things that they do along the way. But meanwhile, before we get back to the trial, again, as the Holy Spirit is just kind of taking us along the way, providing this contrast, as they are all inside, here's Peter outside, we go from the courtroom to the courtyard. It says verse 54, but Peter followed him, and notice what it says next, at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire, which is understandable. It would have been a cold night, it would have been late at night or early in the morning, so to speak, dark outside, so it would have been cold. And He's apparently outdoors, he's in a courtyard, he's not inside. So Caiaphas's servants have made a big bonfire and Peter is there warming himself at the fire. And notice again those words I told you to notice that he was following Jesus at a distance. Because sometimes I think when we distance ourselves from the Lord in some ways, we find ourselves in interesting situations. And I think this is an interesting picture of such an instance where when we're distant from the Lord, where we can find ourselves. Notice where he finds himself warming himself alongside the enemies of the Lord. Now, he has not denied the Lord at this point per se, but he's not exactly wearing a bright neon t-shirt that says, I love Jesus Christ, so to speak. What he is doing, and you can tell from the beginning, is he's just sort of trying to blend in. And I would say, in a metaphorical kind of sense, 
that for you and me, when things don't go so well in our lives, when our world comes crashing down, as was the case for Peter on, their, on that night, the question that I would pose for us, again metaphorically, would be, where do you and I turn to for warmth when we grow cold because of the difficulties of our lives? You think about it, because if we turn to the world for the world's warmth that the world has to offer, say, the counsel of a coworker who doesn't know the Lord that speaks into your marriage, or potentially, say, the self-medication remedies that the world has for us, that offers up to us uh, in this lifetime. You know, when you're hurting, when you're lonely, when you're discouraged, you know, where do we turn to to receive that warmth from the world? I mean, you might just see that when your heart grows cold for God, when you're at a distance from Jesus Christ, instead of turning to Jesus Christ, if instead you turn to the world, you might find along the way that you're going to get burnt, that you might find yourself standing there at the fire of the enemy of our Lord, of the enemies of our Lord, to people with people that don't know the Lord in familiar places, things, you know, from our past, you know, a place where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came, so to speak. Something along those lines, going back to those kinds of things. Just ask anybody sitting around you here this morning that knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and even after they came to Christ, they made the mistake of going back to the warmth and comfort that the world has to provide for us. Because the challenge and the problem is that those things that the world does offer, they are pleasurable, they are warming, but the Bible says they are for a season, for a little while. And before you know it, just like Peter, as you find yourself at a distance and in any way turning to what this lifetime offers in terms of how to comfort us in the midst of difficulty, you'll find that then it will be much harder to make a stand for Jesus Christ. It'll be much easier to deny Jesus Christ or to not speak up for Jesus Christ as you're warming yourself by the fires of this world, as you're hanging out with the world, as you're distancing yourself from the Lord Jesus. Because in John's gospel, we're told that first he stood by the fire. Here Mark says that he sat by them, and in a little while we're going to see that he'll be acting like them. Okay, now meanwhile, as Peter is outside where bad company is corrupting good morals, Jesus is inside being questioned about his own. Verse 55, it says, Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. This is the people of Judea versus Jesus of Nazareth, and at this point, the prosecution has no case. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. It was seen that they tried to hire some people someone within Jewish hierarchy somehow to get them to testify falsely against Jesus, but they couldn't even get their story straight. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. First of all, Jesus never said that. Back in John chapter 2, he never said he would destroy the temple. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He was speaking, we know, 
about his body and about his resurrection. But the disciples knew that only in retrospect, so you can understand if they thought he was referring to the actual temple, but even then, he never said he would destroy the temple. He said, if you destroy the temple in three days, I will raise it up. And the most dangerous kind of untruth that there is is untruth that's sprinkled with a little bit of truth. It's kind of like the theory of evolution, right? There's just enough observable reality sprinkled into the theory of evolution to get people to believe in the theory of evolution, even though no scientists have ever observed one type or one kind turn into another. They've never observed that. <clears throat> but because there is just enough truth mixed in, it causes people to believe that it's true. As the famous poet once said, a lie that is all a lie may be met and fought outright, but a lie that is partially the truth is a harder matter to fight. So you could just imagine someone's pacing back and forth as Caiaphas is there on the throne and Jesus is in the witness chair bound up and someone's like, so tell me, Jesus of Nazareth, did you or did you not on more than one occasion talk about the destruction of the temple? Yes or no? And you just imagine if Jesus said something like, well, I did, but you know, in context, no further questions, Your Honor. Just to try to get to the point that they want to get to so that they can, uh, you know, manipulate the flow of information here. And yet we're told there in verse 59 that the case is still falling apart because even the ones that tried to testify that Jesus did say he would destroy the temple, they couldn't even get their stories aligned. And so, verse 60, the high priest stood up in the midst, which, by the way, he was not allowed to do this either. He was supposed to be the judge. When does the judge, just like in our court cases today, you think about, you know, they had a very sophisticated system of law in the land to make things fair for witnesses. When does a judge stand up and start testifying? <laughs> in any court case, you can't do that. Judge doesn't get to do that. And that's what Caiaphas is doing here. That's because he knows there's absolutely no witness. There's no witness. There's no testimony. There's no evidence against Jesus. And so he stands up in the midst. He sort of takes over here and asks Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he, that being Jesus, kept silent and answered nothing. Now we know he could have answered. He could have mounted an incredible defense against what they were saying. Could have brought in hundreds, thousands of witnesses that heard him teach, that he healed, that he cured of leprosy, that he cast demons out of that he cured blindness. He could have called the wit witnesses of the demons themselves. They testified in the Gospels that he was the Son of God. What do you have to do with us? They said. He could have, demon 104, 6, 7, 8, get up there. Who am I? You're the Son of God. Okay, no further questions. He could have called the demons himself if he had wanted to, and they would have been compelled to say he is the Son of God. But he did not do that, and he did not do that because God always said that he wouldn't from 700 years before through the prophet Isaiah. It says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth to fulfill prophecy. He opened not his mouth. 
That is until Jesus was asked a question that was worthy of an answer. And I believe that if anyone, if you're here this morning and you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I believe that this question is a question that he will answer from an honest heart every single time. And here it is. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, the Son of God? And Jesus said, I am. Now, I'll make a point that I've made many times before, but this is different. So many times you hear people say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, and we always talked about all the times in which he does. But just note the one distinction here in this instance, that now he's saying it under oath. He is saying that he is the Messiah, and that he is the Son of God, and he is saying it under oath. And there is absolutely no wiggle room to think that these are confused in their reaction, or that in his follow-up statement here, that he is not trying to hammer home the point. Instead of just saying, I am, but you know, you know, that's kind of a technicality and all that. He says, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. In essence, what he's saying is, you stand in judgment over me right now. But ultimately, one day I will be the judge. And by making that statement, we know, everyone in that room knew that he was signing off on his own death sentence. But he was, once again, leaving absolutely no room for doubt. You're looking for a text you want to take someone to in all of the Bible where Jesus claimed to be God? How about this one? How about this one? This is one of the better ones right here. Because he claims to be it, then he claims to be the judge someday, and then look at their reaction. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death because he claimed to be God. And the only reason the high priest would ever tear his clothes is because in his mind such utter blasphemy was made in this holy court here among these religious men. And yet I find it so ironic. They're so self-righteous. And yet did it not even occur, I'm sure it occurred to some of them, at least in retrospect later on, the way that they then treated Jesus as a result. It says, then verse 65, some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palm of their hands. This is not the Romans. This is not the guards that belong to Pontius Pilate or Herod's police force or something like that. They'll get their shot at him later. These are religious men that are doing these things. Young and old, dark gray, no hair, long beards, mustache, whatever, to a man, every single one of them condemning him. They spit on him. Still to this day, probably the biggest insult you can ever deliver to another human being. And then they put a bag over his head and began pummeling him with punches to the face. They played that game called prophesy. It was another way of mocking his claim to deity. If you're really who you say you are, who just punched you just now? Time after time after time again. How does that make any sense? If a man is delusional, 
or even a liar. The worst kinds of criminals don't get treated this way. Think about today, you think about the worst criminals in the world. Some of them get exchanged for others. Some of them get released because our prisons are too full. The rest of them at least get three full meals and they get to watch the Super Bowl and shoot hoops during the day. This is the worst kind of criminal, even if Jesus was, for religious men to be pummeling him and beating him and spitting on him, tells me something about what was going on in their hearts. Tells me they were very angry, very frustrated. There was something about Jesus that got a rise out of them. Have you ever noticed that that is true, that there's something about Jesus Christ that gets a rise out of people if they don't know Jesus Christ? He seems to conjure up within someone because they're convicted, because the testimony of Christ is true, because the Holy Spirit is here on this earth testifying to the truthfulness of his claims, and it gets a rise out of people to the point where here they are, they're at war. They're at war with him. They're mad. They're angry. They would have never treated anybody else this way, not these men. No way. And for them to all stand there and to watch this happen and to sign off on it, without anybody standing up and going, what are you guys doing? You don't need to be punching him like this. Is unbelievable. Okay, now, to conclude this, as Jesus is being pummeled out there, verse 66. Now, as Peter was below in the courtyard, again, seems to be simultaneous, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch, and a rooster crowed. That's the first crow of the rooster, and it's the first denial. He was not ready for this. He knew that Jesus had told him that he would deny him, so he pulled out his sword in Gethsemane. He followed him, albeit from a distance, but he was one of the few that followed him all the way to the courtyard, though he was not let in the house of Caiaphas. But he was not ready for this kind of a temptation for denial. This is a slow pitch, soft toss, batting practice, fastball, strike one, swing and a miss. It's a little girl. It's just a little servant girl. He was ready for soldiers, the torture crew to come, whatever, some kind of intimidation, but instead it's a little girl. Now you're driving down the road sometimes up in the hills near snow, and it, there are big signs say, you know, danger, icy roads ahead, or slippery, wind wet. But if Peter had seen a big sign that said, danger, little girl ahead, he probably would not have been concerned about what that would have represented to him in terms of his denial, and that's exactly why I think he failed. I'm not criticizing him. I would never even begin to, considering my track record, my track record can, uh, criticize him in any way. I pointed out because of the sheer powerlessness we have in terms of trying to, in our own determination, stand our ground in any kind of environment that we're in. Now, his idea was, well, if I have to die with you, I'll do that, but if you want me to, you know, make sure that I affirm who I am in front of a girl, that's a little different issue. And it reminds me of, even in my best efforts, how I can be brought against what is a relatively small kind of challenge, and I can just curl up in a ball in self-defense out of fear. I think that's kind of what's interesting about this 
first denial here is that it shows us that denials aren't always um, with big bullies. You know, like it's a Columbine kind of situation and they put a gun to your head and they say, do you believe in God, you know? And we always think that that's what would be difficult for us. Would I deny the Lord if they put a gun to my head and said, do you believe in Jesus, so to speak? Now, I'm not so sure that that would actually be harder. I'm not so sure that at that moment in time that you wouldn't have the courage to go, you know what, no way I'm denying my Lord at this moment in time because the Holy Spirit would give you the strength and the grace at that moment in time to do and say what he would have you say. Sometimes that's not really even the most, you know, scary kind of instances or situations where we might be tempted to deny him. In actuality, it might be around a family member or, or a co-worker or the girl next door who wants to sell you Girl Scout cookies and says, what is that plaque right there on the, on the uh, wall right there from the book of James? What does that mean? Oh, you know, it's just something that my parents gave me. So anyway, how much of these cookies right here? Because in a sense, it's just that much more, it's just not convenient, I don't want to get into the whole thing, and then what if the parents, they come over afterwards, and you know, this is just not a good time for this, I would, but you know, this doesn't really work out right now. And if that isn't just the more um, current, more recognizable, more often type of tendency that we have in denying the Lord, and when that happens, then slowly but surely, we find ourselves, just like Peter here, kind of comfortable, blending in with the world and then notice I think this is true for us as well that Peter just kind of gets comfortable in these denials and in um, escalating these denials as he goes it says and the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by so now it's not just her and him but others in the area so it gets a little tougher now and she said this is one of them but he denied it again Strike two. This is one of them. One of who? One of the disciples. See, the Bible says go throughout the world and make disciples. I don't believe there's any such thing as converts. I think if you're a convert, you're a disciple. So in essence, by Peter denying that he was one of them, by denying he was one of Jesus' disciples, he is in essence denying that he is a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, in Matthew chapter 26, it says, but again he denied, this is on the second denial, he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. He's like, as Jesus is inside, under oath, he places himself under oath. Under oath, I tell you, I do not know the man. So again, growing in force, more emphatic are these denials. Um, as he goes, and every, by the way, compromise, that we make works this way. They grow in their force and in their consistency. As we give in, in situations like this, it becomes easier all the more to give in the next time and in a greater way. And a little, little later there, middle of verse 70, those who stood by uh, said to Peter again, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech or your accent shows it. Then he began to curse and swear, and he said, I do not know this man of whom you speak. That might be one of the worst parts about Peter's denial. Notice how he said that. Now, I don't know, I don't speak Greek, but this is what they translated for us here. 
And notice that he says, I don't know this man. What a, wow, slap in the face. This man that you're talking about, whatever, Jesus? I don't know this man that you're talking about here. And again, we're at a moment in time in which Jesus quite literally could be on the other side of the wall, taking a pummeling because he refused to deny who he was. Here's Peter on the other side in the courtyard saying, I don't even know who this man is. And he cursed and he swore. And that's not like what you think back in the day before Peter met Jesus. He's mending the nets and he's got a snag and he throws out a whatever kind of Hebrew word that I don't know. But more likely, what he's saying here is he's pronouncing a curse upon himself. If I know this man, let me be accursed. Let me be damned to hell. And no sooner did the words come out of his mouth, the third denial that we're told here in verse 72, a second time the rooster crowed. And then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. And Luke's gospel tells us that at that moment in time that Peter turned, and you know who he saw, right? He saw Jesus. He locked eyes with his Savior. And our God is not a see I told you so kind of God in the way that you and I are. But he is a see I told you kind of God. And when that happened at that moment in time Luke's gospel tells us that he didn't just weep, he wept bitterly. And the two words are one word in the Greek, and it means to weep or to wail to the point where it takes over physically. You ever been sore the next day because you wailed or wept so hard, your ribs were hurting you? That's exactly what happens here with Peter. Allow me a few minutes as we close to point out some things, because I mentioned earlier that Peter's denial did not stem from a lack of faith. Peter had faith. I would even suggest to you that he had kind of a supernatural kind of faith. Remember at one point um, Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? And they said, well, you know, Elijah or one of the prophets. And he said, you are the Christ, Peter did, the son of the living God. And then Jesus turned to him and said, blessed are you Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Peter had received special revelation from the Father in identifying Jesus as the Christ. There is no indication in scriptures anywhere that Peter's faith ever faltered or that he ever began to doubt Jesus' claims to deity or that he was the Messiah. Peter's denial, number two, did not happen because of a lack of love that he had for Jesus or a lack of a deep personal relationship he had with Jesus. No way. He was one of the twelve. And at that, he was one of the inner circle, one of the three. Every once in a while, Jesus would pull apart Peter, James, and John, the three. Like in the garden, just hours before. Or on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember where he peeled back the outer layer and revealed to those three his eternal glory that he had always had? 
Peter had a deep relationship with Jesus Christ. Peter's denial did not happen, number three, because he lacked a knowledge of God's word. He may have initially when he met Jesus, but for three and a half years, he'd been all up and down the nation of Israel listening to Jesus preach in all of the synagogues. He didn't lack the knowledge of the scriptures. Number four, he didn't deny Jesus because he had any doubts about Jesus' power or that he was God as indicated by his power. He was an eyewitness to, again, three plus years of unspeakable miracles that no one had been doing, that he had never seen. Some of the things that Jesus did that none of the prophets ever did that's recorded in anywhere in the scriptures that Jesus uniquely did, like re restoring sight to the blind. Number five, he didn't deny Jesus because he lacked a commitment to Jesus either. He was the one that pulled out the sword. Remember, at that point, there were 600 soldiers. When he chopped off Malchus's ear in the garden, there were 600 soldiers. That's a lot more dangerous than a little girl. He didn't lack commitment. In fact, he was also one of the ones, one of the few that followed. Maybe John did also, but the rest all scattered. And he followed into the courtyard. He wanted to be close to Jesus. He had a strong commitment to Jesus. He left his fishing nets behind. He was the one. Where would we go? Where else would we go? He was that kind of a guy. He had a total sold-out commitment. And yet for all of those things, he still denied Jesus Christ, which tells us then, for our purposes this morning, that just like Peter, we can be the same way. We can have a strong commitment to Jesus Christ. We can have a strong belief in Jesus Christ. We can have solid Bible knowledge because we study the word. We can have a great love for Jesus, a deep personal relationship with Jesus. We can even have a strong faith in Jesus. You can have all of those things and you can still deny him. And not just on a singular occasion, but you can, as a pattern of your life, just kind of live under the radar, so to speak, where really most of the people that know you in your life, they don't even really know that you're a Christian. And maybe even many, if not all of us, I'm not going to put you in this if you don't belong in this, but maybe even all of us, at least at one time or another, we look at what happened to Peter here, and more than just look at this as, wow, Peter really blew it, and then later on the Lord restores him. What a touching story. We should instead look at this and go, you know what, this is not foreign to my life. This idea that I would deny my Lord. We live in this reality constantly challenged on basically a daily basis. Will I make a stand for Jesus? Will I speak up in an instance? Will I answer the question that's posed to this group? Even though I love the Lord, even though he need not any longer convince me of anything concerning himself, he has already won that battle with me. And by the way, I always have the best of intentions. But when the moment of truth comes and somebody is spouting off one thing or someone else is asking another and the Holy Spirit is prompting, and then what do I do oftentimes? I remain silent. And when I do, and then I look back at that, and when I think about that, maybe many of you, just like me afterwards, when you're like, I had a shot. I could have, I should have. The Holy Spirit told me to, and I didn't do it. And it is no different. And bitter tears sometimes can be wailed as a result of our failures to stand for Christ to the point where I can even question the validity of my own faith. 
What's the hope for me as a Christian man all these years walking with the Lord if I couldn't even say something in that instance? Is there any hope for me? And the answer is yes. And it's yes, not because we're all going to make some big commitment or vow here this morning and then hold each other accountable to it. Because if we learn nothing else from Mark chapter 14, no amount of self-confidence or determination or resolve is going to get it done. However, roughly 50 days after the lowest of lows that Peter would experience on the day of Pentecost, he would get up and preach the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Boldly in Jerusalem in front of thousands. He's no longer trying to blend in. He's unrecognizable to us at this point. He's not worried about saving his skin. He's no concern for that at all whatsoever. Once silenced by the threats of a little girl, he's now emboldened in front of an entire city. And as a result of that sermon, 3,000 people come to place their trust in Jesus Christ. How? Why? How could that have changed in that time frame? Did he go off to seminary for a while? Was that it? Did he go to a local church and hang out there for years and get some experience? Did he pop in Kirk Cameron's video on how to share your faith in seven easy steps? And I'm not demeaning any of those things. But obviously none of those things were the prevailing factor in Peter's life in terms of why he was bold just 50 days later. Jesus tells us in Acts chapter 1, before he ascended, he told his disciples, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And the purpose of that power, it says, you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth and at the bank and at the Little League field and at the PTA meeting and in the neighborhood and even among family that doesn't believe. Power to stand for Christ comes from one person and one person alone, the Holy Spirit. Not only to not just not deny Christ, but to speak for Christ, especially in an environment where we otherwise wouldn't allow ourselves to. It's no secret, those of you who know me well, that my favorite worship song we sing here is The Stand. Mike has mentioned it several times before. In part, it's a great song. But in part, it's because I'm negotiating with myself as we sing that song every single time. To be the kind of Christian that will be committed to making a stand for Jesus Christ. And yet, I'm entirely helpless of ever making a stand in my own strength or because I sing it out loud, utterly committed to carrying forward with it in my strength and in my resolve any more than Peter was. Now, the perception, I think, sometimes of Christianity is, okay, here's the law, here's the, the gospel, here's Paul's letters, and now this is what we're supposed to read, and now we've got to roll up our sleeves and be good Christians. And to do that is to set yourself up for failure. I don't have to tell you, because you know that you cannot just then go, all right, fine, I got this now, and I'm going to suit up, and I'm going to go to battle for the Lord. A good example of that would be the Apostle Paul. We have a tendency, I think, to look at the Apostle Paul and we go, man, you just look at the book of Acts or you look at the epistles and some of the things that he did and what he went through. He had boldness to the nth degree. What I wouldn't give to be someone like that, but alas, I'm not. That's not who I am. That's not my makeup. That was him. That's who he was. It kind of came natural 
to the Apostle Paul. But that's not true. The Apostle Paul's boldness was all supernatural. We see it in his writings. I'll give you an example. Ephesians chapter 6. He said, and pray for me, he said, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. He said, would you pray for me? As I often pray for myself in this regard, that I would continue to be bold and not be silenced when opening up my mouth to reveal the mystery of the gospel. I think the whole thing, and I've quoted it before, and I think it's good, it's all fine and dandy, the old saying, always be preaching, and when necessary, use words, that's fine. That we would live a life as a testimony so that even without a word, people would know that we were Christians, but at some point, the words need to come out. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the fragrance of Christ. That we would have an aroma, a spiritual aroma, that when we walked into a room, people would know there's just something different about us. And that's true, but let's face it, folks. Most people in this world don't know the difference between Giorgio Armani and Aqua Velva. They just don't. And so their conclusion, well, there's something different that must be just a good person or a Mormon or something like that, but they don't know that you really are in Christ necessarily just from that unless those words come out of our mouth. And I think sometimes we live in a generation where we want to fit in, we want to blend in. I'm all for friendship evangelism and winning people over with love over time, but we can get very, very comfortable living a life under the radar, living a life of silence and being okay with that. And I think if we're honest, all of us, before God this morning, we would admit that that is no different than what Peter did here. If where I work or where I live, nobody knows that I'm a Christian, then how is that different than denying the Lord? If I'm not living and speaking in such a way where everyone knows that I am. It is a lot easier to live a life dedicated to the Lord even sanctified unto the Lord without ever having to speak for the Lord. And Paul prayed that he would open his mouth boldly. And you know what? Not a single person would be sitting here in this room this morning if someone else hadn't opened their mouth boldly at some point to tell you the truth about the gospel. It was always meant to be preached. And not just in some pulpit like this, but by everyone, by all of us, wherever we are. I want you to know that the easiest place in the whole wide world to be bold is in a pulpit. Are you kidding? Don't ever give me an ounce of credit for being bold. Sometimes people come up to me afterwards, thank you for being bold, Pastor. No, it's not a difficult thing about it in the world. I'm preaching to the choir. Everybody here is either a believer or they're not, and they're respectful of the fact that we are, and we thank them for that because they know we have the right to do this. But I preach this, I talk about this with passion because it's my own problem. It's very easy. I live in Hollister. My neighbors don't even know who I am. Just want to get that off my chest this morning. <laughs> there are a lot harder places. And in a church, in a small group Bible study, or a home fellowship, or in a church to share your faith. 
It's when the family comes to town. It's at work at lunchtime when we go across the street to the burrito place and someone says something and you're like, I could jump in here, but there's seven people. That person might know the Lord. I'm going to be alienated from this group. That's a lot harder. And we can be just like Peter. We can know the Lord. We can have a love for him. We can have a deep relationship with him. We can have faith in him, but we can still choose to fly under the radar just a little bit. But you know what? You don't have to do much. Let me just encourage you with this as we close. You don't have to preach a sermon to them. Sometimes it's just a little something that can be said. Somebody blabs about this or that. You know what? I just think when it's all said and done, all roads lead to heaven as long as you do a little bit more good than bad. And all you have to do is just say something like, well, I don't believe that because that's not what the Bible says. That's it. And that just uh, was a little thorn that they're going to carry with them to bed that night. It's going to cause them to think about that later on. Or someone could say, Jesus never claimed to be God. And you can go, really? Have you ever read the Bible? And that might cause them to pause next time around. So what's my problem then? What's your problem? If Peter was lacking the Holy Spirit, and then he had the Holy Spirit, and then he was bold, what's our problem? We have the Holy Spirit. Well, that's why I brought up Paul. Because Paul, again and again, said, pray for me. And he prayed for us to be filled. He prayed that we would be filled, that we would ask God to fill us. Chuck Smith used to say, I pray to be filled because I leak the Holy Spirit as I go about my life. So God, fill me. And my prayer this morning is that for you, for me, for anybody who wants it, I'm going to close right now. I'm going to have the worship team come up. And I'm going to pray, if you just want to be filled with the Holy Spirit this morning, and it's, as I do, I'll raise my hand first, okay? I'm going to pray. Just raise your hand with me this morning as the worship team comes on up. Everybody bow your head. This is not for show. It's between you and God. And if you just desire, as I do myself, a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon your life, and just raise your hand. I'm going to pray for you where you're at this morning. And this is my prayer as well. Just raise your hand. I'm just going to pray for you. Let's pray together. Lord, we see these hands raised. It's basically the whole church. And Father, we just ask right now that you would fill us with your spirit. We thank you, Lord. You're faithful to do it. Lord, we understand that we are weak and powerless to go out and fight this battle without the Holy Spirit. He's got to overflow within us. Lord, we are all too guilty of just trying to come to church and say, I'm going to do it better next time. And then we try and do it without him. So Lord, fill us. And then God, would you also kindly just beckon us to pray daily for a fresh filling of your spirit because we need that in our lives. In Jesus' name.